We're going to be in Ephesians 2, 14 through 18 this morning. That's the text we're going to be focusing on, but I'm going to have you turn somewhere else to get prepared. Uh, Go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians, okay? I know I've been messing with you here lately, starting somewhere other than the text we're going to be covering. Um, But 2 Corinthians 5 is where I'm going to first have you turn today. In the movie entitled Lincoln by Steven Spielberg, there's a small scene that beautifully illustrates the foundation of the movie. Um, and really the philosophy behind President Lincoln's desire to end slavery. In an otherwise empty telegraph cipher office, Lincoln is sitting there with two young soldiers, one of whom turns out to be Kylo Ren in one of the Star Wars movies. That doesn't matter for the story. He's sitting there pondering with them his actions, and he's wondering, should he aim towards ending the war, the Civil War, and keeping the horrific institution of slavery in place? Or should he potentially prolong the war but pass the 13th Amendment that would solidify his Emancipation Proclamation, bringing the institution of slavery to its knees, all the while knowing that thousands more could die? Pulling from language within the Declaration of Independence, Lincoln ponders aloud this statement. He says, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. He then seems to move off topic, as the character of Lincoln in this movie does. I don't know if that was really what Lincoln was like, but many people believe he was. He moves supposedly off topic and begins speaking about the principles developed by an ancient Greek mathematician named Euclid. In doing so, he states possibly one of the most important theological statements I've ever heard in a movie. Lincoln says, Euclid's first common notion is this. Things which are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. The men listening to him do not understand, so Lincoln continues. That's a rule of mathematical reasoning. It's true because it works. It has done and always will do. In his book, Euclid says that this is self-evident. He pauses and he says to the young men, Do you see? There it is. Even in that 2,000-year-old book of mechanical law, it is a self-evident truth that things which are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. We begin with equality. That's the origin, isn't it? That's balance. That's fairness. That's justice. Now, if you pass by these statements of Lincoln too quickly, you miss the amazing theological genius that they put in place there. Whether he said these words or not, I don't know. But the script is unbelievably theological. If all men and really all mankind are created in the image of God, then this alone should be reason to give one another mutual respect. And in a similar fashion, the only way we can knowingly objectify another human being is to remove this equality and separate them from the innate image of God that resides within them. Two things equal to one thing means they're equal to each other. This is the core of what it is to understand the Imago Dei. That the Imago Dei, the image of God that's in the triune God, that he is innately relational, innately equal, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, innately equal, but yet subservient to one another in varying ways, in different roles. And this is part of the theology that drove Abraham Lincoln to realize that whether a person's skin is black or white does not matter, they are innately made in the image of God and therefore equal. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, as we learn throughout the book of Isaiah, the work of justice is the work that brings about this right relationship between God and man and mankind with one another. Justice does not simply punish wrongdoing. That is part of it, retributive justice. But it is the work that also brings about right doing. It doesn't just punish wrongdoing. It brings about right doing. It is what restores God's good created order and brings about shalom or peace. Now, the Israelites were chastised by God because they they didn't realize or maybe they even ignored their God-given directive to bring about justice and righteousness on earth. They were, in effect, proving themselves to be of a different kingdom than the one ruled by the God of justice who brings about righteousness and shalom. And so God rebuked them throughout most of the prophets. That's what the prophets are there for, is rebuking them for their lack of bringing justice to the world. 
One rebuke that I'll read you really quickly because it'll come up later today is from Amos 5.21 through 24. Look at what God says to his people. I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies or gatherings. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. What does he want them to do? He says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. A person who claims the sacrifice of Jesus in front of the Father, but yet does not live a life that brings justice to injustice and righteousness when you see sin and evil, that person is going to hear the exact same thing from Father God. I, I won't even accept this supposed sacrifice of yours. You don't get what it's for. He rebuked them because they were supposed to be a people of shalom and they missed the point. God's call to his people was that they would be a people that would bring about God's rule of reconciliation and justice wherever they were. Now, likewise, we as New Covenant people known as the church, the holy assembly, the holy gathering, We are also called to reflect this same truth to the people around us. Take a look with me there at 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Ooh, man, if you got highlighters, get to it. Let me repeat that. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, in other words, now that we're saved, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we, raise your hand if you're included in that we. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We gloss over this last line, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I did it for years. Yeah, now I'm righteous because Jesus died for me, alien righteousness. He's in my place. I get to go to heaven when I die. Yeah, that's what he means. No, guys, we become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means that we're not just speaking a message of the gospel with our mouths, but by the way we live our very lives and the way we relate to each other, we become, we become the illustration of what happens when the good news takes effect. We become the illustration of the gospel. That God is good. That he has been enthroned over his people and that we have been forgiven and saved from the kingdom of darkness and that his kingdom of justice has been inaugurated. We are the message. You are the message. And innate to your life, it's not just living a life of goodness and kindness and niceness and holiness. You living in reconciliation with the people around you is the message. And this is what he means in verse 1 of chapter 6. This is how we are working together with him then. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. He has done the work to save us purely by his grace and bring us into the kingdom of light. And our response is simply... Simply to live out this truth. We don't have to work anymore to get in the kingdom. Never could. Never would have worked. 
Now we operate out of this truth in our everyday lives. And as such, we make our appeal to the world through the illustration that is us. We are a people of shalom. Now last week, we spent a great deal of time wrestling through the idea of the Old Testament understanding of drawing near to Yahweh, drawing near to the Most Holy God. And we realized that Gentiles previously had no hope of ever being in God's presence unless they became ethnically Jewish. You can go back and listen to it. It's online. But even if you were a Jew, you could still only get so far because in the temple, only priests could go. And that little priest standing there in the middle, he could only go up those steps and through that curtain, that veil, to get into the Holy of Holies where God's tangible, physical presence, his Shekinah glory dwelt. Only he could do that. And he could only do it once a year. On that day, Yom Kippur, he would take two goats, one upon whose head he would symbolically place the sins of the people and then release, and the other he would sacrifice as a sin offering to atone for the sins of the people. And then he would take the blood and enter the tabernacle with that blood of that sacrifice, and he would sprinkle it and cleanse the temple eventually passing through multiple layers of curtains. This wasn't just a shower curtain. Tradition states that this was three feet thick, multiple layers of curtains. It was like a maze. You had to just keep going. And part of that was protection so that you wouldn't die from your impurity standing before a most holy God unless you had gone through the proper steps. And he would see the Shekinah glory of God dwelling above the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. Can you even imagine what that would have been like? And when the high priest emerged from the tabernacle or temple, he would step forward in front of all the people, waiting with bated breath to hear if on that day, that one day, they had been reconciled to God, that their sins had been forgiven. Imagine the thousands of people standing outside the temple waiting, and you could hear a pin drop, and the Holy of Holies... The priest comes out of it, he walks through the most holy place, he emerges out the door, and he stands before the people, and they wait. What's he going to say? We've been waiting for 300, their their calendars, uh, uh, 360 days. We've been waiting all these days. What's he going to say? And he loudly proclaims, Israel, your sins are forgiven you. And they erupt because they know that they're in relationship with God. Can you even imagine what that was like? The quiet as everyone strains to hear the words of the priest and the roar of the people in response. If only we could be like that people. But for the Gentiles, there was an even greater barrier. We looked at this graphic last week where there was this dividing wall that would keep the Gentiles from even entering into the courtyard. They would hear the cheers in a distance, but they would know that they were not part of those cheers. They were outside the covenant of promise. And this dividing wall kept them from ever entering. They could only stand at a distance and gaze longingly to be near the presence of God. They were, as we were, outside the temple of God and the presence of God. But the amazing good news, the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ, is that in his death, something awe-inspiring happened. Look with me at what Matthew says occurred within the temple. Because of the atoning sacrifice that Jesus offered up his own life for our sins, something happened when he died and gave up his spirit. Matthew 27, 51, as do a couple of other gospels, states clearly that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Okay? Any of you other guys, were you like me when you were a little kid thinking you were super strong and you grabbed the phone book? I know that those don't exist anymore, really, right? And you grabbed it and you tried, "Eh, eh," right? That would have been like somebody trying to tear this to the nth degree, right? Only God could tear this veil. He's the only one that could rip it from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And the veil that stood between the holy place and the main part of the temple the main part of the temple and the Holy of Holies where the tangible glory of God dwelt, it was torn in two. And now any Jew, if they offered the appropriate sacrifice, meaning Jesus, they could go through into the Holy of Holies. It was open to them, but not only did the Jews no longer need to rely upon a high priest, but the Gentiles didn't need to either because Jesus had become the high priest. The work of God the Father through Jesus Christ, his son on the cross, 
made Jesus the sacrifice and the high priest. And the author of Hebrews helps us understand how beautiful this is. Turn with me to Hebrews. Go to the right in your Bible to the book of Hebrews. And look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. He's speaking here of the Mosaic law. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. You can see this uh, in that picture of the, the temple here. Okay, That's the first place. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded in the tables of the covenant, tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent— not made with hands, that is, not of his, this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, the Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now you know why I blush when people say that the gospel is all about me dying and going to heaven. It's much more beautiful than just that. Jesus was the high priest. Jesus was the sacrifice. In his resurrected form, Jesus could emerge from the tent of the tabernacle victorious. And proclaim to the people that their sins were forgiven. And Jesus can stand before you today and tell you by his own blood, your sins are forgiven you. I'm waiting for the eruption, the applause. Do you recognize what that means? You who are dead in trespasses and sins with no hope in the world have been brought near to the Savior that loves you so that you can be with him for eternity. Mission Fellowship, your sins are forgiven you. But it goes further than that. This is not just for the Jews of the Levitical law and the Mosaic covenant. Through Jesus, God has brought the Abrahamic covenant into full effect because all the families of the earth have now been blessed in Christ. He has now opened the way for all humans, regardless of ethnicity, to come into his presence. God the Father has done the ultimate work of reconciliation through his son, Jesus, the Messiah. He has reconciled that which was separated. He has taken things which were different and made them equal. He has drawn them together. He has made them one. And now those of us engaged with God in this new covenant, which is what you are if you proclaim to be a Christian, you're engaged in this new covenant with God through the work of his son. You have taken on a new identity. And we are now sent throughout the world as a people of shalom, a people of reconciliation. For some of us, that may may mean going to West Africa or to Europe or to Southeast Asia. For most of us, it means reconciliation right where we stand. It means our homes, our marriages, our children, our neighbors, our coworkers, the fellow students that are around us, DHS. It means dealing with ethnic issues of Inequality here, it means dealing with inequality within genders. It means helping those who can't help themselves, the vulnerable, the oppressed, right where we stand. And what's so amazing about this, guys, is this is who we are, even if we don't want to claim it, because this is our name. 
Mission comes from the Latin word missio, which means to be sent. And Salem is an anglicized name of shalom. We are sent to bring shalom. That is the name of our church. And how hypocritical are we if that is not the actual case of our lives? We are to be, and I believe we're growing into, a people of shalom. So let's take all this we now know from last week's introduction and this intro and take a look at our text for this morning. Go with me to Ephesians 2 and look at Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. And just for context, we're going to go back to verse 11, a little bit before that, and just read here. He says, we're saved by grace through faith. And then he says, and this is because, therefore, verse 11, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That was last week's teaching. Now, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one father or in one spirit um, to the Father. The first thing that we see in our reading today, you can write this down. Jesus is the peace that brings reconciliation. We as Christians love claiming that Jesus is our peace. Almost as if we're Eastern meditators who want him to be our mantra. Jesus is my peace, Jesus is my peace, Jesus is my peace. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of that and that's okay. But if we just claim Jesus is the peace that makes us kind of chill out, we're missing the point of what this word peace means. The Greek here uses this emphasis of he himself is our peace. Jesus is really, really, really our peace. But what does that mean? Yes, it means that he is the one that can give us calm in the midst of the storm. But typically in English, we mean the absence of conflict when we talk about peace. You can have really no relationship whatsoever, but if you're just not fighting, then you consider it peace, right? Uh, those of us that are married in the room, that's, that's a right, right thing, right? That's very often what we think. Well, at least we're not fighting, so we're peaceful. But that's not the Hebrew nor the Greek mentality. Even in the Hebrew, it means something different. When people in the Roman Empire, for example, talked about the Pax Romana, Pax Romana the, the peace of Rome, what they saw was a vision of the entire Roman Empire, all the conquered people groups living together in peace and harmony, all underneath one system of law, one governing king, one social order. The problem was that the citizens themselves hated each other, and it was only by the rule of an iron fist that kept conflict at bay. The Hebrew notion of peace or worldwide shalom is similar, except they recognize that mankind is broken and operates from a place of selfishness and hostility. So in the Hebrew culture, the thought was that this peace would only be accomplished if God ruled over his people by changing their hearts. And this was the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, that he would change our hearts and we would become his people and he would be our God. And then we'd have one king, one rule, one order, and we would all live in true harmony. The problem was that as long as the Jews were isolated from the Gentiles, the fullness of the promise of shalom to Abraham could never be awarded. Take a look with me again. We looked at this last week, but remember this from Genesis 12. This was the covenant of Abram. The the promise that God gave him that we still operate in. Abram was before, 430 years before Mosaic law ever came into place. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Remember that meant, meant that he was getting taken out of the kingdom of darkness and following Yahweh. At the point this point in time, he was basically it on the earth. He says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abram, meaning in your offspring, who eventually would produce the Messiah, Jesus, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How can all the families of the earth be blessed if the Jews are separated from the families of the earth? See what I'm saying? How can the rest of the families be okay? Abram's family is okay, but not the rest. 
Well, as we talked about last week, the laws and ordinances of the Mosaic law were put in place to protect the Jewish people from totally falling away from Yahweh. And that way, the seed of the Messiah could still come from a people that, while in rebellion, still looked to Yahweh as God. It was to protect them. And once Jesus came, there didn't need to be the protection anymore, so the Mosaic law was removed. But remember what Jesus said. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. One of the misnomers in most of evangelical Christianity that I run into, not most, it's one of the biggest things I run into, is a heresy called antinomianism. Everybody say antinomianism. You won't remember it later. It's okay. It means anti-law. We have this weird, bizarre theology that says, well, the law was bad, so grace is good, so get rid of the law, and I'm standing in grace. No more law. But the problem is, is 1 John says that sin is lawlessness. We still absolutely live under law, just not the Mosaic Code. I'll talk about what that law actually is in a moment. But if you think that standing in grace is getting rid of the law and doing whatever you want, you are standing in a heresy of antinomianism. It's been dismissed by the church for 2,000 years, and yet somehow it gets preached from pulpits all Sunday long across the country. This law, the Mosaic law, was there to protect them. It's kind of like when my wife was pregnant. We'd had seven miscarriages, and so you can imagine, those of you who got pregnant the first time and it worked through, you still wanted, husbands, you still wanted to protect your wives in bubble wrap, right? Imagine me. I was like, it was like those egg experiments, right? When you were a kid in class, right? I, had, I wanted her in bubble wrap, right? In, a, in one of those big giant bubbles that rolls around like a gopher ball, right? I, like, nobody touched my wife, right? Second babies came, I was like, yeah, now I got to put the bubble wrap on the kids. You're okay, Kel, right? Okay? That's a different story. But the reality is, is I didn't need the bubble wrap anymore. It's the same thing with the Mosaic Law. It was added because of transgression, as we saw last week. And so the ordinances could be removed from the Abrahamic covenant to which they'd been added. And in Christ, God was fulfilling this promise to bless the families of the world. But there was still one problem. There was still this wall, this middle wall that separated Jew from Gentile. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter if the curtain was open inside the temple unless that middle wall of separation was broken down. So that the Gentiles could come near to Yahweh. And it also didn't matter if people could pass through that barrier and yet they still acted in fear and hostility toward one another. Now, why would that be a problem? They can go to the temple, they can worship, but there's no reconciliation, there's no action. Well, it's a problem because, remember, it doesn't matter that if you're Jew or Gentile, we operate naturally. Our neutral gear is operating in the kingdom of darkness. And how does the kingdom of darkness operate? Does it operate in shalom? What's the answer? No. No. Well, Paul tells us in Galatians 5, he says, this is what is the kingdom of darkness. The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries. Focus on these words, guys, right here. Dissensions and divisions. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why will they not inherit the kingdom? Well, because they're not part of it. You can't inherit a kingdom you're not part of. And if this is how you operate in life, most likely, if this is how I operate in life, most likely, that means, remember my, my uh, metaphor last time? If I wake up, I'm driving on the left side of the road, I'm paying in pounds, and I've got a British accent, am I in America, most likely? No, if I am, I'm getting in a car wreck. If you wake up in the morning and you look at your life and you go, man, I've got sexual immorality, I've got impurity, I've got sensuality, I've got tons of idols because I'm trying to make my kingdom my own, you know, I've got enmity and strife and jealousy, I have drama around me all the time, I get angry all the time, I've got dissensions and divisions, I'm envious of people who are successful. Guys, you're probably driving on the left side of the road and you're paying in pounds. You're not in the kingdom you think you are. That's not me trying to be harsh. That's me trying to go, don't drive on the left side of the road over here. You're going to get in an accident. I love you too much to let you do that. And so if we see that, there's a really easy way to step out of this kingdom. It's called Jesus Christ and his love and grace. And he says, step into that and I'll bring you into my kingdom. And so not only did God, through the work and sacrifice of Jesus, remove the ordinances that separate us from one another in the covenant of promise, but he also sent the Holy Spirit into us to bind us together under one spirit and reconcile that which previously operated this way, dissensions and divisions. 
And so now, rather than having Jews and Gentiles, what did Paul say to the Galatian church? For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Guys, if our lives are marked by dissensions and divisions and envy and brokenness and hostility, we have to ask ourselves, are we fooling ourselves about our Christianity? You know, it breaks my heart every time I sit down with a person who doesn't believe in Jesus and the first words out of their mouth are, well, the main reason I don't believe in Jesus is because you are all Christian, or Christian uh, hypocrites. You know, you say you follow this gospel, but I don't see much of it in your life. And the new thing over the last 30 or 40 years is to say, yeah, come join us. We're all hypocrites. Hey, that's what the church is full of is hypocrites, right? Like my little dance there? It's a hypocrite dance. <laughs> my wife is so embarrassed right now, just saying. Okay. But I've gotten to the point where I look at them and I say, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's no wonder you can't see the grace of Jesus because the mirror that was meant to reflect it and illustrate it has a giant messy crack down the middle of it. Because the church isn't acting as ambassadors of reconciliation. We're breaking apart based on every little thing we can find that's different. Remember Euclid's common notion? Things which are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. Think back to 2 Corinthians 5. I won't read it again just for the sake of time, but go read it again with this in mind. You see, if our king is operating his kingdom to bring about reconciliation, what we must realize as Christians is this. Those who follow Jesus abide by the law of reconciliation. Those who follow Jesus abide by the law of reconciliation. This isn't one that we can gloss over or find loopholes in. This is what we do. We reconcile. Somebody says, I'm a Christian, then they should also probably go, which means I'm a reconciler. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verse 16 there. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. What did Jesus preach? He preached the law of reconciliation that comes only through the gospel. Not just a gospel of peace that stopped at not going to hell when we die, but a gospel of shalom in which the whole world is slowly but surely being brought under the reign of a just king. And that will not happen until the fullness of time when Jesus returns. We know that we're in an inaugurated kingdom where we're kind of striving for it, but we're not seeing its full game. But until then, we, the church, operate out of the good news that we are reconciled to God and therefore we are reconciled to one another. One of the biggest problems in Christendom, in my estimation, is this misunderstanding, like I said earlier, that God removed the law. That he did away with the Mosaic law, and that means that we're done with law. That's not true at all. We shout, we're not under law, praise God. But the reality is, is we are still absolutely under law. It's just not the Mosaic law. Well, what is the law? Well, just read through the New Testament. It's called the law of liberty, the law of Christ, the law of love. Here's one place where Paul talks about it. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Talks about it in Galatians 5.14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This was the memory verse for our kids today. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. That doesn't mean we get rid of it. And in, this also doesn't mean that this love is more than just, it doesn't mean it's just a positive regard for someone. I love you like I love pizza. It means the love of Christ, that you lay down your life, that you die for them to be reconciled to them. If we love one another in this way, we are operating in the law of God and his kingdom. To be God's people is to operate in reconciliatory love. To live within the law of shalom is to bring justice to any and every situation where we find injustice. It dawned on me the other day. I know this is shocking, but Kelly and I had a little bit of a, a tiff, right? We, we, we never fight. We're, we're that holy pastoral couple, right? I'm sure those of you who are in ministry, you, you never fight ever, right? We had a little bit of a tiff, and I realized in the midst of being the kind of blockheaded husband I realized that what I was doing in trying to manipulate my wife to hurry up and get my point of view and, you know, just discard hers was I was actually trying to oppress her. 
I was actually trying to just come over the top of her. And to pull back a little bit and go, I want to express my, my opinions to you, but I also want you to feel equal to express your opinions to me and put it both on the table and have an equal view of our opinions so that we can come to a conclusion together. It was like mind-blowing for me. Oh, I got to bring justice right here in my kitchen to my wife because that's what Christians do. We operate in reconciliation. This year on April 4th, it's the 50th year of Martin Luther King's death. There's been all this debate lately about, was the racial reconciliation gospel motivated? And I'm like, really, people? Seriously, you have to ask that question? I want you to hear some of his I Have a Dream speech in the context of what we're talking about today. And please recognize, as I quote from it, I will be quoting directly from various parts that Dr. King himself states, and so he uses language I would not normally use to refer to my black brothers and sisters, okay? So just recognize those Right? Different time, different day. I just want to be clear about that. Right? But this is what Martin Luther King said. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their adulthood and robbed of their dignity by signs that say, for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and the Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. Guys, is racial equality a question of the gospel? Absolutely. Because in Christ's kingdom, those who follow his rule walk in reconciliation under his law. We no longer sit in hostility. We strive to walk in the reconciliation that God has already granted through the gospel of his son. And to hit out at the larger issues of injustice and bring shalom in this world, we must first look deep within ourselves to see if the core of our own lives, in our own kitchens, and the core of our fellowship is one of reconciliation and unity. We can't go conquer those big things if we, sitting in this gym today, cannot walk in reconciliation and unity. And so going back to Ephesians 2.18, we see that because those who follow Jesus abide by a law of reconciliation, we can also see this next thing. It says, for through him, we both, that which was separate and now has been brought together in reconciliation, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. You can write this down. Where the Spirit of God truly resides, one will find unity and reconciliation. Where the Spirit of God <clears throat> excuse me, truly resides, one will find unity and reconciliation. In our hyper-spiritual environment, where everyone wants to be spiritual, but very few want to submit to the authority of Christ, we have become confused on what evidences the Spirit of God at work in a person or people. We will see this specifically in chapter 4, but what shows that the Spirit is present in a healthy body of God's people, more than anything in my opinion, is that God's people exist in a common mission to walk in unity and reconciliation. Now knowing this, let's ask ourselves, can the outside world look at the people of Mission Fellowship and see evidence of unity, reconciliation, and commitment to one another? Folks, I believe that they can. I believe in this church and I believe that this church is growing in an understanding of what unity and fellowship and reconciliation looks like. And I believe that that evidence is growing each and every day. 
The question is whether or not you individually want to participate in that evidence. When the Spirit of God is at work, the, word should see, the world should see our unity. And I would submit to you that the first and foremost job of the Holy Spirit, as it says right here, is to reconcile us to God and therefore reconcile us to one another in relational commitment and faithfulness to one another. Where the Spirit of God resides, that's what you find. You don't find division and dissension. The goal of a healthy church should always be to be motivated by the gospel of God's reconciliation. And this should create a group of people that identify as that new covenant community. I know that many of you in hearing about our installation of covenant membership and church discipline initially felt fear. And that fear probably came from a number of very, very, very valid places. But I want you to look with me really quickly at Matthew 18. Turn there with me in your Bible to Matthew 18. And I want to show you something really quickly that I think is very, very important for you to understand as to why we've moved forward in covenant membership so that we can use church discipline if necessary. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is, uh, well, really through 20, is the section on church discipline. And it says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, judging from where you come from, if you're operating out of fear, you're going to read the first half of that and you're going to get very scared. I don't want somebody to come and tell me my fault. But if you're operating out of the power of Jesus Christ and his gospel of reconciliation, you're going to focus on the second part of this verse. If he listens to you, you have what? Gains your brother. Reconciliation. The whole point of church discipline is for the purpose of reconciliation. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let, it be, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, meaning outside the covenant. Now we read this, and this does seem very scary, but recognize, guys, that if your goal is always reconciliation, you don't have to worry about it. And that's Jesus' goal in implementing this in the church. How do we know this? Look one section before that to verse 10. This is the parable of the lost sheep. Now, what's funny about this is this is all over contemporary music. Um, Bethel did yet another song where in the middle of it, talking about how God came and saved them, they used this section of scripture to say, God left the sheep, the 99 sheep, to come and save me, one of his sheep. That is not what this section is about. That is bad understanding. I didn't even mean to do that. That's how good at jokes I am. (laughs) Why is it bad understanding? Because what were you called in the symbolism of the New Testament before you were a sheep? You were called a? A goat. He didn't leave the 99 sheep to go get the one goat. He left the sheep, all of you, to go get the sheep that was straying. This is about the discipline that's coming up in the very next section. And what was his whole point in going to get that, that sheep, that one that had left? It was to what? Bring him back into the fold, reconciliation. See, guys, a church that's operating out of reconciliation, you don't have to worry because the goal is always to reconcile you. So a healthy church that institutes church discipline is not for the purpose of threatening or harm, but is a safety net to help keep sheep that will wander into unrepentant sin from harming themselves. Guys, I need that, and so do you, because we love each other. Remember this too when it comes to the process of membership. I know that the phrase membership interview, (laughs) it conjures up images of a dark room with bright lights and Pat and I standing over you going, what's the gospel, right? That's not exactly how we do it. I'm going to start calling it the membership conversation. Remember that Patrick and my goal is simply to converse with you to see where you're at in your walk. And if you're walking as a Christian, we'll, we'll help you in that interview to overcome your nervousness because we want the spirit that's dwelling in you, to have a voice in what we're doing as a church. And so we'll help you and get you through that. And if it becomes obvious in that conversation that you are not a believer, we won't exclude you or beat you up or say, you failed. What we will do is we'll walk with you and set you up with a discipleship relationship within this church to help you grow so that when you're ready, we can welcome you with open arms. It's, it's to reconcile you. It's to do the work we need to to help you so that you can walk in relationship with Jesus and his people. 
please, please, please don't fear that conversation. We love you too much to let you fear that conversation. There's no such thing as failing when it comes to this process. We're all failures, and that's why Jesus died for us. And so now we get to help one another walk through the process of knowing what it is to walk in him as opposed to in us. Our goal is always reconciliation, never exclusion. And we love you and desire for you to be reconciled to God and to one another. And if our church can fully walk in this law of love and reconciliation that brings about shalom, then we will truly be that people of shalom. Not perfect, but working towards reconciliation whenever conflict arises. Not walking in passiveness or aggressiveness or passive aggressiveness, but speaking the truth and love to each other as we're commanded to do. That's the core command of the new covenant, to speak the truth in love. And this is so important because we want so badly to be an evangelistic church, spreading the gospel to all points of the compass. And this is the last point I want you to write down. Most of the time we think of evangelism as, well, we have to all know what to say. Well, some of you, you're not gifted in the speaking part of evangelism. You're just not. That's not who you are, and that's okay. I've found over the years that I don't do all that well standing up to give an evangelistic message because I'm a teacher and a pastor. It's hard for me to go to a crusade. I've done some of those, and it's, it's tough for me, right? Some of you are gifted in evangelism, but quite honestly, one of the main ways you know you're gifted in evangelism is not if you can roll stuff off your tongue, and do apologetics, it's if you're living the life that reflects the gospel. So you can write down here, living as an active people of shalom proclaims the gospel to the world. Living as an active people of shalom proclaims the gospel to the world. And remember that living as an active people of shalom is not that you'll never have conflict. That would be ridiculous and illogical. It's that when conflict arises, what do we do? We go to reconcile. You see, before we ever use words, we must begin the journey of living out the good news. We want to be a church that proclaims the good news of God's peace and forgiveness, restoration, unity, and reconciliation. But folks, any words we use are worthless to the person listening unless they see the reflection in our lives. Wouldn't it be amazing? Dream with me for a second. Wouldn't it be amazing to be a church that is full of different backgrounds and ethnicities? Full. You look out and you see people from all over the globe. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could be a church that is safe for people to come and wrestle with their sexual brokenness in any way, shape, or form so that they can eventually bring it under the loving authority of Christ? Wouldn't it be great if we never heard older people leave our church because there were not enough people their age? And wouldn't it be great if we never heard young people leave our church because it wasn't as trendy as the church across town? Wouldn't it be amazing if both men and women felt fulfilled and utilized in their ministry as co-equal heirs of grace to one another? Wouldn't it be amazing if we had the richest of the rich in Salem and the poorest of the poor raising hands in worship together and sharing communion together? Wouldn't it be amazing if we were one regardless of race, gender, physical ability? If we were just one. That's the church. And we want to be this church. We want to be a people that is sent in the name of peace. And I believe we're getting there. I believe that what I'm seeing in each and every one of you is your desire to lay down your life to pick it up for someone else. And I'm proud to be part of this church. But to be able to show this understanding of reconciliation in the largest differences, to make the the impact on a broad scale We must first understand that reconciliation happens first in the most minuscule, mundane differences. You see, one of the reasons we framed our community groups based on geographical proximity and not affinity with regards to your age or your hobbies or your personalities is that we like the idea of an uncomfortable, awkward mess that is a community group. Different people, different ideas, different personalities, all given the common mission to reflect a community of mutual love, respect, and reconciliation to the geographic neighborhood that they're in. 
And this is the mark of a healthy community, the mark of a healthy church. People that don't necessarily agree or naturally get along, all working under the law of love to show the world who our king is. And we are only as good as our weakest link, guys. All of us need to be on the same page with the necessity of reconciliation and faithfulness to one another. You don't have to agree with me all the time or the person sitting to your left or right. What we do have to agree on is Jesus Christ, his kingdom, his righteousness, his justice, and his law of love and reconciliation. And so for our point of application this week, first, I want you to ask yourself, if this is the law under which I, you, desire to operate, ask yourself if that's your goal, if that's your desire, is that the the law under which you desire personally to operate? And second, ask yourself if you are truly acting under it. And if not, my call to each one of us today, individually, is to repent if we're not. It's to turn towards what Christ has called us to do and to be reconciled. You see, we're going to step into a time of worship where we raise our hands and sing songs to the Lord take communion together, which is a statement of our common unity, give of our treasure to the Lord because we know that in doing so, we are giving our hearts to him. But core to the communion is we're basically remembering the sacrifice, the altar sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the altar of the cross. And if we do that without reconciliation in place, we are no better than the Jews that were being rebuked in Amos. And that is why Jesus says this. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. When we go to the table of communion, I want you to search the depths of your heart And to ask, is there any lack of reconciliation between me and anyone else in this church? Is there anything that I need to lay down so that when I approach that table of common unity, I am not doing so in hypocrisy? And I've said this for many weeks, and I see people kind of gloss over and go, yeah, he doesn't really mean that. No, I absolutely do. I absolutely mean that it is time during communion, to get up, awkwardly walk over to someone that you've got something against, express that to them, confess that to them, talk with them, and walk through what reconciliation looks like. Until we are willing to do that, I wonder if we can claim to have laid down our lives for Christ. We have to be a people of reconciliation. This church must reflect that gospel good news. And all it takes is the choice to say, I operate by Christ's law, not my own. Our commission as disciples of Jesus is to go forth from this place as a people of shalom, which means we deal with the business of shalom now. Acting in concert together to show God's power of reconciliation to a world that so badly needs it. And if we begin walking in this truth day in and day out, not just at community groups or on Sundays, but every moment of every day with our spouses, with our children, with one another, if we do that, we will speak the gospel and its power with such clarity and volume that Salem and Kaiser and the surrounding areas won't be able to do anything but be drawn to Jesus Christ.